Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This morning we're into chapter 3 as we just began looking at loss. Loss. You can lose your temper, you can lose your hair, lose heart, lose the game, lose your memory, lose your marbles. You can even lose the will to go on, but there are plenty of good things to lose as well. You can lose weight. You can lose debt, lose stress, lose yourself in a good book, lose track of time when you're having fun. But for Paul, I think the greatest loss of his entire life, he might term losing my religion. In 1991, it became one of the anthems of Generation X. R.E.M.'s enigmatic song of that title, Losing My Religion. Of course, Christians were offended, but the song wasn't even about losing religion. In fact, what lead singer Michael Stipe said was, losing my religion is a southern expression for when something has pushed you so far, you'd even lose your faith over it. But when we read the story of Paul in the scriptures, when we understand what took place in his life, we recognize that's a good definition of what happened to the apostle. When Paul met Jesus, he lost it. The encounter pushed him so far, he lost faith in himself. Lost faith in the rigid requirements of ritualistic religion. Paul lost faith in all of the things he had worked so hard to that point in his life to achieve. All of these things, Paul says, I counted as loss. Worthless, rubbish, nothing. And Paul had a lot to lose. If you can put yourself into his first century sandals in the Jewish community. Back when he was Saul, Shaul in the Hebrew, which means to insist or demand. It's a strong name. 
the demanding name, the one who asks much of himself and others. And when we first met Saul, his name fit his nature. You think back to Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women to put them in prison. You know, religion is demanding that way. It can ravage households. It can drag people down. It can imprison lives. We see Paul again as Saul in Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found anyone belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Little did Paul know that while he was on the way to Damascus, he would have that profound, singular, bright encounter with Christ that would change everything. Eventually, he would even lose the demanding, insistent name of Saul, trading it in for a simple Greek name, Paulos, which means small or little one. Paul the demander became Paul. Or Saul the demander became Paul the little one. And if he was here this morning, for all of his glorious background, I think that Paul would tell us he gave it up and that's when real joy began. He writes in Philippians chapter 3 verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I I love this letter because as we've talked about, it's very casual. It is the letter form of writing. Unlike the other letters of Paul, it's, it's more the friendship letter, the family letter style in Greek and Roman letter writing. And so we come to chapter 3 and he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. You think, okay, he's just about done. But he's not. We still have two chapters to go. He's only halfway through. And what happens with Paul, as would happen in conversation with someone, is you say an end to the conversation, you begin to conclude, but then something else excites your heart, and so you have to keep going. And that's what happens in Philippians. He begins to end, but he's going to say finally, at least one more time, before the letter's done, that's kind of similar to the way Pastor Jake preaches. Just one more point. I do that all the time. You know that. Finally, and you know, okay, we got about a half hour after that one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He says to write the same things is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard to you. The word safeguard there means a certainty. The word is asphales. But it, it's from the word follow. And any time in Greek that you, you see this, if there's an A at the beginning of the word, especially added on to a previous word, follow means to fail. But if you put the little A in front of it, as follows, the A negates it. So it's a failure negated. That's what this word literally means. To, to no longer fail, but to have now absolute certainty. He says, to write these things to you is a safeguard. What's he saying? Well, Peter said it in Acts 2.36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain, as follow, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's a certainty. You want to rejoice in the Lord. You want to know joy, a joy that is certain. You want to have eternal security. Jesus is your safeguard, not your religion. 
Not your denomination, not your tradition. I think we've been over this a few times through the last several years. But it is not my church that saves me. I love my church. But the bridge doesn't save me. My safeguard is Jesus Christ. My safeguard is my relationship with Jesus. It's not in all the things I've accomplished or achieved in my lifetime. It's not in the list of things that I can say, look, I did this, look, I did that. Oh Lord, but what about these things? None of it matters. My safeguard is Jesus Christ. My safeguard is standing there at the gates of heaven and saying, I'm with Jesus. And that's it. And that's the security. That's the joy. Not mankind's vain attempts to prove ourselves to God. He says in verse 2, so beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. I wish someone had told me, beware of the dogs before we bought Reggie. (laughs) Because I would have listened. Beware the dogs. They will destroy your house. (laughs) Now, when Paul says this, beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision, he's not talking about three people, he's talking about one. Three descriptions of the same type of person. And they're very descriptive. Dogs is, is the word in the Greek that means street dogs, mutts. These are not pets. These are not, there's another word for pets that's kind of a sweeter name. The word dogs that he uses here is, it's not a good word. In fact, it was usually a pejorative word that Jews would use about Gentiles, those Gentile dogs. These are those who run in religious packs. And they steal and they scavenge and they bite and they growl. Paul turns this word onto the false teachers who steal away joy because they're acting like dogs. They intimidate people, growling and snarling to go back under law or to be under work rather than living by grace. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. The dogs. Beware of them. Beware of the evil workers. That's those who think God is impressed by human effort. Notice it's evil workers. These are those who work hard by the sweat of their brow in their tradition, in their legalistic labors. And they, they don't steal away joy. They attempt to replace joy with counterfeit rituals. Show up at our annual church ceremonies and that will secure your salvation. Where's the joy in that? I remember talking to a Jewish friend of mine several years ago and he made the comment that, you know, we, we were looking forward to Passover and I was excited about Passover coming. He said, I hated Passover. As a Jew growing up, it just ruined the whole day. I don't know why anyone would want to be a Jew. This was this Jewish friend's statement. I thought that was really interesting. That ritual steals joy. Replaces joy with rules. And so you've got the dogs, you've got the evil workers, and then you have the false circumcision. And this is perhaps the the most on the edge, if you would, of what Paul is saying. The false circumcision, the word is katatome. It means one who cuts off. It's exactly what you're thinking. It's the mutilators. Those who wouldn't circumcise, but they would go far further than circumcision. 
They were just cut off completely. The word circumcision is peritome, and it's a much more uh, careful word. (laughs) And it, it again means circumcision. Paratome is a distortion of the word. So our Bibles will say the false circumcision versus the true circumcision. Paul says, beware of the katatome, we are the peritome. And the katatome, the mutilator, cuts off joy. Cuts off any semblance of joy. Dogs, evil workers, mutilators. Paul is saying, beware. These are the ones who steal. They replace and they will cut off the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. Why is it after so much religious labor is it that people feel weary? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not the work, not the labor, not the ritual. The joy. Can you say this this morning that the joy of the Lord is my strength? I mean, does that, do you feel that? Do you know that? Don't you find in your life that in the moments where you recognize Jesus and joy fills your heart, that you actually feel a little more energy? You feel a little more vibrant. There's something going on in the heart that makes you feel like, yes, I can go another step today. I can take it a further step tomorrow. But when someone says, hey, you showing up for the work day? We got you on the list. We want to make sure this gets done. And you weren't there the last seven. Steals the joy. I'm not opposed to church work days. So when we have them, we'll talk about how joyful those are. But you know what I'm saying here. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And he goes on in verse 3 and he says, For we are the paratome, the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul mentions three things to be aware of, three attitudes, three mentalities of the same type of person. Again, the dogs, the evil workers, and the false circumcision. But then he gives three behaviors now that counteract the influence of these. Three behaviors. Worship in the Spirit of God. That's what the circumcision do. That's what those who are truly circumcised of heart We worship in the Spirit of God. Why is that so much better? Because it's personal. To worship in the Spirit. Jesus explained this early on in His ministry, actually, walking down to a little city in Samaria, a city of Sychar. He stopped at a well just outside of town. You know the story. The apostles went on in to to fetch some food to go to the local Sychar Burger King. And Jesus stops at the well and he begins talking with a woman there who couldn't hope to be acceptable in religious circles. You understand that that was her situation. This is a woman whose background and whose reputation would have negated her acceptance in a proper church fellowship. And she's there at the well, stuck, thirsty, alone at high noon, and she's spouting religious lingo. Which is interesting because oftentimes people who would not be accepted in religious organization will spout the lingo anyway because they think they've been taught that's, that's where I need to go. That's what I need to, to make it through. And so she's talking to Jesus. And in verse 19 of John chapter 4, let's read it to you. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, in this story, in this conversation, what she's trying to do is put him off. She's trying to use religious talk to kind of dissuade him from getting in to her personal life. Well, Jesus will have none of that. He says to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Well, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not in Jerusalem or on this mountain. True worship is in spirit and truth for such people. The Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship is not theological. It is not geographical. It's personal. And I believe that's at the heart of what Jesus is saying. Look, it's not about where you go. It's about where your heart is. To worship in spirit and in truth. What is it to worship in truth? I'm driving over this morning. I was thinking through this, praying about this, that our worship would simply be genuine. Just true worship. Not trying to impress anyone or look apart, but worshiping in truth. How about worshiping in spirit? That just means my spirit, who I am. I bring to the table. I bring to the Lord. I don't bring my works. I don't bring my qualifying devices. I just bring me. Bring my spirit to the Lord. And there I worship Him openly and honestly. And my prayer is that my worship would would be that way. You know, it's... It's difficult sometimes as a pastor because you can slide into pastor mode so easily. I was thinking about my prayer life and how yesterday I did a wedding. I can pray during a wedding. I can pray throughout. You know, I can pray gathered with, with church staff. I can pray with, with, my, with my friends and, and with our shepherds. I can, I can pray in a church service. I know how to do that. But I, I said to the Lord this morning, I want my prayer to be genuine. I don't want to be praying religion. You ever feel like you're praying religion? Or maybe you don't feel like you're praying religion. You just don't pray out loud because you're not sure what the right religious words are. Hey, we are those who worship in spirit and in truth. Which means you don't have to have the right words. You just have to open your mouth. You just have to bring yourself to the Lord. Honestly, who you are in front of who He is. And He loves that. And this will counteract the dogs. Worshiping in spirit and in truth and authenticity will counteract the evil workers and the mutilators. So will being those who, Paul continues to say, glory in Christ Jesus. We worship in the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus. Again, this is so personal. Because to glory here, the word literally means, it's kalkema in the Greek, it means to rejoice with confidence. It means that I put all glory and all confidence in Him, not in me. So 